The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The history of Star Wars is the history of cinema. For everything you like about Star Wars, there is at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. And welcome back to Episode Zero, the Star Wars podcast where we don't really talk about Star Wars. <gasps> my name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bebs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And uh, we're we're treading on some familiar ground this week. Uh, yeah. Uh, for us, in that we are also doing a podcast called Only the Best, where we talk about all of the films that have been nominated for Best Picture. And it wasn't so long ago... Mm-hmm. That we were talking about the 1927 Oscars. Yeah, so uh, this is a Patreon-exclusive podcast, only the best. Uh, we're reviewing every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We're currently uh, halfway through 1939. Uh, it's very exciting. But uh, the movie that we're talking about today, a movie that inspired elements of Star Wars from top to bottom, but in particular, a lot of elements of Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. Uh, it was the first film ever to win the Academy Award for Outstanding Production, which initially was one of two Academy Awards for Best Picture. The other one was Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. Yeah, the original 1927 uh, Academy Awards had, instead or, of... Ju- 27 slash 28, because they didn't go from January to December. Thank you for correcting me. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had two Academy Awards for Best Picture. They decided, much like the Oscars threatened about a year ago, that they should have basically... To, to boil it down to its simplest components, one for the best movie movie and one for the best art film. Mm. Outstanding production was basically the best movie movie, the big mm. Hollywood movie. And then uh, best unique and artistic production was the best art house film, essentially. Mm. Uh, in the first Academy Awards, these were considered equal awards. However... But, the second but, Academy, but separate types of movies. Yeah, separate types of movies, but they were they, they were both the honor. Like yeah. you, you both were seen as kind of equal. They got rid of those Academy Awards at the second Oscars, and they decided to replace them with the Academy Award for Best Picture, which sounds a little bit more definite and official. And for whatever reason, they decided that eh, the award that was closest in spirit to what we now call Best Picture was the Academy Award for Best Outstanding or uh, for Outstanding Production. Mm. And the winner of the first ever Academy Award for Outstanding Production was the 1927 silent World War I flying ace epic, Wings! Wings! <laughs> 
Winner of the very first Academy Award Best Picture 1927, Wings, starring Clara Bow, Charles Buddy Rogers, Richard Arlen, and Gary Cooper, appearing in a role that launched his career. Directed by one of Hollywood's legendary directors, William A. Wellman, Wings has been masterfully restored, including an all-new recording of the original soundtrack by J.S. Zemishnik and exciting surround sound from Academy Award winner Ben Byrne and Skywalker Sound. It's the story of uh, the Buffalo Hot Wings restaurants. Who could forget the time that Tim Daly and Thomas Hayden Church worked at that one small (laughs) airport, which is a very loose adaptation of the best picture... There was a sitcom called Wings. I never watched Wings. It was fun. It, it, from what I understand, it was unbearably popular. It was it was one of those shows that was popular without being particularly good. Like, it wasn't bad, mm. but it, there's a reason why people don't quote Wings very often. It's just, it was fine. Like, oh. it was an amusing show, and then we saw, watched something better. I saw one and a half episodes of Wings. Yeah. I remember very little. Remember a line of dialogue, first we were hitting each other with meat, then it got weird. Um, good, <laughs> good, good line. Good line, yeah. I can see why um, that was sticking in your head. William Wellman's film Wings doesn't have that line of dialogue. Uh, it doesn't have any dialogue. It's a silent film. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> it is about, uh, in brief, it's about a, a pair of rival World War One flying aces. They're friends, and they come to blows over their mutual affection for one woman. Uh, and and then they smooch at the end. Uh, that's all you need to know about Wings. <laughs> if you wanted to boil it down to its yeah. basest elements. But on top of being this uh, uh, film about a great camaraderie, on top of being a film about... Actually, it's a love quadrangle. Uh, yeah, these two men are in love with one woman, uh, but one of them is also dating Clara Bow. Mm-hmm. Who and is, she... if, if you don't know that name, she was one of the greatest silent stars of all time. She was known as the mm-hmm. It Girl. Uh, and which I put in air quotes, even though you couldn't see it. I don't know why I did that. Because uh, uh, she's called the It Girl because she was in a movie called It. Yeah, the reason why we have the expression It Girl, it refers to a film, kind of like how when we refer to like gaslighting, that refers to the movie Gaslight, Gaslight yeah. which was a remake <laughs> of the movie Gaslight. Which, when they remade it, they decided to try to destroy every copy of the original Gaslight so as not to reveal what gaslighting meant. Mm. It's real weird, but. Um, yeah, yeah, so Clara uh, Bow was a huge star. She was the biggest star in this movie. Uh, and, yeah, she was um, She's often considered a sex symbol. She's uh, uh, really a very talented actress. She was one of those performers who didn't make the transition from, uh, from silent film to sound very well. Mm. Reportedly, she hated it, although a lot of truths have come out about how she was one of those performers who was dubbed difficult which probably means not not easy to push around by the studio heads yeah there's there's sexism and yeah. the industry goes right back to the beginning yeah yeah so um, but yeah she she's a, a super humongoid mega star it's easy to see when you watch something like wings oh yeah she's amazing she, in wings. she's more interesting than either of the guys yeah i have i have th- there's a great melodrama going on here but there's also things in this melodrama that do tick me off but when you're watching wings Wings is an incredible accomplishment in terms of cinema. It is impossibly epic. And we're going to talk about some of the ways in which this movie is staggeringly filmed. Mm. And like you're sort of looking at it like, how the hell did they do that? And then you realize that the way that they got those incredible shots 
of airplanes doing these incredible things and shooting each other down is that they just did that. They they attached cameras to wings of actual biplanes yeah. and flew them around filming it. This was actually one of, if not the first movies that actually filmed actors in the air. And you're watching this movie and the cameras are like strapped to the front of these biplanes and they're facing at the actor. And they're flying the plane. And they're actually flying the plane. <laughs> and there's this incredible thing, because they're just static in the foreground. And you might think it's a rear screen projection shot, but it's not. Mm. And you see other planes, like, flying around behind them, doing loop-de-loops and stuff, as they're flying around and going in incredible directions and making incredible turns. It's breathtaking and exhilarating. And then you realize that on top of all of that, they're acting. This isn't just them flying a plane. They're, they're giving like dialogue, they, which, you know, they didn't record the sound, but they're saying it. Mm. They're acting it. They're doing whole scenes. There are squibs going off. They are dying. And you think about, like, how the hell did they do that? And how the hell they did that was... They just did it. They <laughs> taught the actors to fly if they didn't know already. I think a few of them did. Mm. Uh, they got them to fly around in midair. They told them all the loop-de-loops and crazy stuff they wanted to do. And they said, when stuff is behind you, now you have to operate the camera. And while the camera is on, you have to act. And they had to direct yeah. themselves. Holy crap! It, it's not uh, Wings in Martin Scorsese's The Aviator, but mm. they, there is That's, some really um, fun... Uh, uh, what is it? Devil something. Um, uh, how do I forget what, this? what are they filming? I, can, the I keep wanting to say uh, Hell is for Heroes, but that Hell's Angels. Hell's Angels. Yeah. yeah. Um, there, yeah, there's there's some fun. Uh, Scorsese dramatizes it with like state-of-the-art special effects. It's all CG in the aviator. Yeah. But the idea of like strapping a camera onto the wing of a plane, how they're getting so close, they're actually knocking the cameras off of the wings. It's, it's pretty crazy. And one of the things they talked about in the aviator, which was an actual factor uh, in wings as well when they were filming it, they knew that if you were filming an airplane in the air and you didn't have anything behind them, like a cloud, uh, it's actually kind of hard to tell how fast they're going, how mm. like how far off the ground they are. It's like it just kind of looks like it could be easily faked. So there were actually weeks upon weeks in this movie where they weren't filming any aerial stuff. And William Wellman was apparently getting notes from the studio like, where's all our footage? And he's just like, there are no clouds in Texas this week. What do you want from me? <laughs> well, when we get clouds, we will get this footage. And the footage they got is unbelievably yeah. astounding. Uh, this came at uh, right like near the tail end of the silent era. It was mm -hmm. the, the only film, only silent film to win Best Picture all the way up until The Artist. Yeah, and uh, even and, that's, and, even well, that's and, only a kind of, because there yeah. is a sound bit in, in the movie. I, I, it's... it's Silent. I'm, it's not, functionally, I'm, not, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna I, split hairs. I'm just saying it's functionally silent, but Wings is definitely the the true silent yeah, film. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh. And I think it, during this period, like during this era of like right at the end of silent cinema, I feel like before sound came in and kind of mucked everything up, mm -hmm. they had filmmakers and Hollywood had kind of mastered filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And you watch films from like 27 to 29 and these things are fucking awesome. Yeah. Uh, they're... Even before. Even they, before. But like the late were, 20s they, they were, were incredible movies. And, and it was a time when, when I think filmmakers were freer to work with much larger, more operatic stories, much mm -hmm. bigger emotions. They were far more melodramatic. Mm -hmm. There was a uh, lot of really like, experimental uh, camera work yeah, which, would, which would very really, quickly they'd stop playing with when mm -hmm. sound came along because when sound came along there were a lot of issues that prevented them from doing as crazy things. Yeah. Like, because you needed to record sound while you were actually acting out the scene, 
you had to put the camera inside these giant blimps so that you couldn't hear the sound of the camera roaring. Mm. And as a result, the cameras became a lot less flexible. You can't move them around nearly as much. And so it actually takes you, – you look at – and there are exceptions to this, but it's, it takes mainstream cinema quite a few years after sound became the norm to start becoming v- truly visually innovative again. And again, there are total exceptions to this, but a, a lot it, you, look, it, at, you yeah. look at a lot of the films from like 1929, 1930, 1931, some of them are amazing. All Quiet on the Western Front, for example, is an incredible looking motion picture, but a lot of them are pretty stodgy. Yeah, yeah, and And I feel like when you're dealing with silent cinema, you have to communicate uh, emotions without words. Yeah. As such, the stories have to, they essentially have to read from the back row. Mm-hmm. I know it's a movie, but uh, the idea that they have to project the emotions like that much further into the audience mm-hmm. makes for a much more exciting kind of melodrama that we're not, even when you're going to like these big gigantic three hour superhero epics, mm-hmm. they're still trying to keep those grounded in a weird way. Yeah. They're, they're actually playing the emotions down a lot. Mm-hmm. When, whereas in something like wings, because the silent acting is actually more effective in sort of when it's not subtle, mm. uh, they're actually writing stories around situations that don't require subtle emotions. So when everything gets really, really big, whether it's a giant battle sequence or just a really powerful emotion, it reads in the back of the audience. Another thing you'll see in a lot of silent movies is a lot, and they do this in sound too, but there was a huge reliance on symbolism. And there would be a lot of icons and iconography and visual images that would be heavily relied upon to tell a story. For example, yeah. in this film, uh, one of the characters has a little teddy bear that he brings from home and he takes to the war and it's his good luck charm. And that teddy bear has an arc. <laughs> teddy bear, we follow that teddy bear. Every time that teddy bear is seen, it is significant it's, and you feel something. because the war horse of this movie. It kind of is. It just it, it's carried along from scene to scene. It means different things almost every time you see it, but it is symbolic of this character's innocence. It's symbolic of this character's you know belief that in hope that he will return home. It, and it breaks your fucking heart after a while because it's a war movie. Not everyone's going home. It's going to be real intense. And uh, and. It- all, these people are all trying to... They're all falling in love with the wrong person. Yeah. And in, in one of the most heartbreaking scenes, uh, Mary, the Clara Bow character, finds her intended. I think... Mm. Was it Jack, Jack. or... Jack. Yeah. Uh, in a Parisian nightclub, and mm. he's completely drunk. Yeah. And he starts pouring his heart out to her, and she realizes that he's not being honest with her, or he's mm. in love with a different woman. And yeah. It just... She, she thinks she thinks he's in love with her, and actually he's been in love with someone else this whole time. Yeah. And she's and, and, and as, as he's drunk and sort of confessing this, not really realizing who she is, your heart is falling on the floor. Yeah. And Clara Bow is playing it... I mean, she's you know, giving a subdued performance for a silent film, but yeah. Yeah, she's really kind of projecting her misery. Yeah. Clara Bow, it's interesting, considering the Star Wars connection, and there's a lot of Star Wars connections here. On one hand... The film Although, is heavily involved in, uh, heavily reliant on dogfights yeah, for, yeah. for exciting action. That's part of it. A I lot think, of it is a story of like, young people, yeah. idealistic people, going to war and having uh, their own personal uh, faults and uh, hang-ups become an important part of that journey. Love triangles getting in the uh, way Im- of imagine, warfare. Imagine if uh, back on his home planet, Luke Skywalker had a girlfriend. Uh-huh. 
And he decided to just sort of gallivant off on this weird mystery. And she chased at, like, without telling his girlfriend. Yeah. And she chased after him. And he got in this love triangle with mm. Han Solo and Princess Leia. Uh-huh. Before she was his sister. They changed that later. Yeah, they did. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was supposed to be kind of a love triangle. Okay, let me, let me, let me and, rephrase it for a way that the, hardcore Star Wars nerds will, 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 will understand. Right. Luke has a girlfriend on Tatooine. She follows him when he takes up the, the resistance. But it turns out that Biggs Darklighter was always in love with her. And she, she never got to find out and shit because Biggs died in the battle of the first Death Star. There you go. Yeah. What is Biggs Darklighter? Biggs Darklighter was a, was a character who was added in the special editions. Oh, no. He was a, he was, the idea was uh, Biggs Darklighter joined the rebellion before Luke. Okay. And that when Luke joins the rebellion, there's actually a scene where he's like, Biggs! And they actually have this moment where okay. they remember being at home, and it kind of just reconnects to the beginning of the film, and then okay. Biggs is one of the characters who dies in, in the oh, film. That, that so his death makes a little bit more resonance. It's one of the few changes to the special editions where I'm like, I, I like that. That's actually was, was fine. Was that something that was cut from the original version, the, or did they add it afterwards? Uh, like, did no, they no, no, store no. old footage? They restored old footage. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, that that sounds good. It, it's, like it's, actually, it's, yeah. it's one of the few changes, especially to episode four, that I actually think is pretty strong. Mm. I'm like, eh, that's probably good. You probably should have kept that in there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so it's big, epic, emotional. Uh, it's again relies heavily on dogfights. It was the first film and only film to win. Uh, uh, what was it? The best engineering Oscar, <laughs> which was <laughs> right. which was kind of like the initial uh, uh, visual effects Oscar in some ways because there's a lot of really impressive uh, uh, mechanics on display here. Not just on screen because there are tanks that are crushing things and it's amazing, but also there's a lot of rigging that's absolutely fantastic. One of my favorite shots in all of cinema is in Wings. Is it it the the bar table or is it the swing? Okay, The (laughs) The bar table is considered a classic and Ryan Johnson has specifically said it inspired him to do a particular shot in Canto Bite. Uh, and we'll talk about the the corollary, I think, between the Parisian sequence in this movie and Canto Bite in Last Jedi in a minute when we get to it. But uh, there's this incredible shot, and I actually recently tweeted about it. There's an incredible shot on a swing where we meet... Okay, so initially we meet... Uh, Mary. Mary, played by Clara Bow, and Jack, uh, played by Charles Buddy Rogers. Uh, and uh, they are the poor kids. Mm. And uh, he's got like a car that he's trying to soup up And she's helping him do it And they're next door neighbors and best friends And she's hopelessly in love with them And there's a whole bit They, they name their car the shooting star And oh. she says you know, you know what you can do when you see a shooting star right And he goes what She goes you can kiss the girl you love And he goes you're right So he gets in a car and he drives over to the rich girl's house That's Sylvia What a dick Jack is <laughs> Jack is a character who I think was very Very instrumental to the creation of Poe Dameron Or at least the portrayal of him in uh, Last Jedi Um we go to the rich people's house, and uh, it's Sylvia, played by uh, Jobina Ralston, and David, David, played by Richard Arlen. And we're introduced to them, and they're on like a porch swing together. Mm-hmm. And much like the shots on the, the, the planes later on, the camera is locked off. It is connected to the porch swing. Uh-huh. So as they swing forward, we swing with them, and as we swing back... 
So the, we swing with them. The and, swing and the actors are stationary in the frame, mm-hmm. but the background is swinging behind them. And it's such an incredible effect that it looks like it must be rear screen projection. And then they do the most amazing thing where in the middle of the shot, you see Jack drive up behind them, see them, walk up to them, and we swing away from him so we don't see him, and then we mm-hmm. swing back to him, and then he interacts with the people in the foreground and you realize that was not rear screen projection. They actually did that. Like and that, I, that would be hard to do in animation. Yeah. And I finally figured out, I was mass, I was marveling at the shot and I was having a conversation with some people on it about it on Twitter. Mm. Like, how do they do this? And I think it's actually simpler than it looks. Mm. My theory, and I actually don't know how true this is. They built a set. The, the swing was stationary uh-huh. and they built an outdoor set that stretched <laughs> out in 600 feet in either direction. No, and that's I, what's, no. No, that's, that, no, that's it's, Kubrick I, crap. It's way simpler than that. Yeah. My theory is this is way simpler than that. They build a large seesaw. Mm. Okay, so you got the camera on one side of the seesaw, and you have a fake swing with the actors on the other side of the seesaw. Mm. And as you move, the ca- the actors and the and the camera are constantly the same, and the and the uh, camera uh, lens is wide enough that it kind of warps at the edges, so it makes it look like you're swinging, even though once you actually really stare at the image and watch it over and over mm. again, you realize they're not necessarily doing that. It's, it's an optical illusion. It's incredible, though. It's such a marvelous shot. It's also, uh, I, not to belittle the, the skill of the shot, but no, I think it would, it, would, it would be really, uh, generally speaking, pretty simple to build, like maybe some sort of swing, like a big, uh, like you remember those big swings you see at the amusement park, the big yeah. boat-shaped things. You build something like that. Where it the, could have been that, too. The, the actual fulcrum of the swing is in front of the actors, and they mm. actually were able to balance out, because those cameras are so heavy. There's probably yeah. even... Well, it, like, bear in mind, it's a silent camera, though. They, yeah. It's actually smaller and on a tripod, maybe. Oh, that's true. Well, Potentially. I don't know what... I don't know what but there's yeah. a camera, there's perhaps even, uh, you know, there's definitely a camera operator and yeah. the, maybe even the director are all standing there and you can balance off that and the actors and have a pretty smooth swing mm-hmm. shot. Either way, though, it's mm-hmm. one of the, it's, and it's not, it's, other movies would not spend a lot of time on this shot. This no. is a shot where you introduce people on a swing and Wings sets you up like, seriously, stick around, we're going to do some amazing fucking mm-hmm. camera work in this movie and they will. Um so, uh, but Jack is in love with Sylvia. Sylvia is in love with David. Sylvia and David are the rich kids. And if you've seen any movie, you know that the rich people are probably the jerks. That is not the case in Wings. No, in fact, they're they're the innocent neophytes. Yeah, and actually, the the problem, the the villain of the movie, besides you know, war, our enemies at war, but mm. there's no real face on those characters. The antagonist of the film, in many respects, is Jack. And his obliviousness and yeah. his self-centeredness and how he thinks the war is all about him. He thinks the war is all about killing. Uh, he thinks that the woman he loves is in love with him, even though all evidence is to the contrary. And he's mm. completely missing the fact that Clara Bow is perfect for him uh, and loves him even though he's a dick to her. Mm. Like, it's actually about sort of the naive perspective on war, love, maturity, and how dangerous that is. And when you take a look at what happens to Poe Dameron in The Last Jedi, where he is the hotshot pilot, he is Jack Mm. in The Last Jedi. He thinks it's all about fighting and war and every victory counts and every single person is telling him you need to grow the fuck up. Every single person is telling him that he's on the he's on the bridge of the ship, saying, "I have this great plan of how we can charge in there and rescue them with the ships." And all the captains are saying, "You don't make decisions. Yeah, you're a pilot. We actually just <laughs> demoted you for making terrible decisions." Mm. 
Like, and it's it, the whole movie. And I think some people rejected this because they wanted to look up to Poe Dameron in this mm. very old fashioned kind of Star Wars way. But in another old fashioned kind of war movie way, he is the character who has to grow up the most. We mm. don't need a hot shot. We need someone who's smart. And he's not smart until mm. the end of the movie. And his wisdom comes at a great price. And, uh, it's and, good storytelling. And indeed, uh, and this is something I, I really admire about The Last Jedi is. Uh, so the the people on the bridge have said we 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 don't need you. You're not smart enough. Don't make decisions. Yeah. And they go off and say, well, we'll make our own Star Wars movie while they're doing that. Yeah. Like, so it's like <laughs> we, we, yeah. we have our own plot here, and we're going to follow it. And what I love about the Last Jedi is it takes a huge chunk. It's like a, a forty minute chunk in the middle, maybe. Yeah. Where they find this idea, and they like call other characters and yeah. say you have to find this code breaker, and you have this plan to break into the enemy's ships and lower their shields, and mm. this is that's like a big kind of Star Wars type of plot. Yeah. And it's and it's the underdogs and they're doing it without the knowledge of their boss that sounds like a pretty conventional star wars story yeah. and even though it takes up this gigantic portion of the movie it deliberately doesn't go anywhere well it doesn't turn out the way they think they don't get to do that plot i think they i think find, it's important to the, the characters yeah. it's important to the characters i think but it's not yeah. important to to the actual central plot of to the, the movie plot. And, the, the, and the point of the movie is that we need to grow up about war and what's interesting to me is I think some people found that sort of a betrayal of the Star Wars concept. And I don't think it is. I think you look at the original Star Wars, it's very sort of gung-ho, uh, let's save the day. But it is, kind a, of, kind it of, is about victory and destruction, whereas The Last Jedi is well, not. But I, I would also argue that the prequels mm. are actually at least attempting to be way more mature than that and talk about yeah. the fall of democracy and how fascism rises and how it, our heroes let us down. It's, it's almost not about those things just because it's so badly written, but that yeah. is what those movies but, are generally about. That's certainly what they're going for, mm. and I and I, one of the things I like about the first two films in mm. the new trilogy is that they kind of represent both angles. The first one is a bit clear-cut. You know, Kylo Ren's got some shit going on, but for the most part it's pretty much good guys, bad guys... And then The Last Jedi is trying to bring it back around and say, okay, but we had that one trilogy that you liked, and that's Force Awakens, and I'm going to sort of harken back to the prequels and try to bring in some sort of ethical complexity to this and some real character development to this in a way that we really didn't have, Mm. even in the original trilogy, which I do love. But the idea is our characters are, are growing or possibly devolving, and we need to explore that. And well, and also they need to explore the consequences of war itself and where it comes from. Yeah, the idea in Star Wars has always been very simple: there are good guys and there are bad guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the head bad guy is you know a, a black knight. Uh, yeah, a black knight in a black cloak and a helmet, and yeah. and the good guys all wear like bright orangey colors and fly white planes and. Uh, that's all well and good for your Saturday matinee serials, mm-hmm. which is what Star Wars was a remake of. We've covered that on the podcast before. Twice. But we had been living, indeed, we'd been living so long with Star Wars that we needed to start asking important questions. Otherwise, it's going to gonna collapse. Yeah, it's going to be the same thing over and over its again. usefulness. So yeah. uh, we finally got to a point in Star Wars where we could say, well, like, who's paying for all this shit? Yeah. It's a war. It's, yeah. And that's something that, you know, other war movies throughout history have examined. The way that war is actually hell for the people fighting it. Mm. But the people who aren't fighting it have a very different perspective, often because they're profiting from it or because they're not expected to fight in it and they just get to be boosters and send kids off to their deaths. Well, again, watch All Quiet on the Western Front someday. Mm. 
I've heard it said that like maybe the Last Jedi in particular, but basically all of the new trilogy mm-hmm. is perhaps based off. And the reason why it feels so different is because it's not based off of the same movie Star Wars is based on. And I think in the case of Force Awakens, it's based on Star Wars, which mm-hmm. is why it feels a little repetitive. I still like it, but it's repetitive. And then, but you look at the Last Jedi, and the Last Jedi is actually based on films very much of the same era, but they're just focusing on different elements. And you can look at Wings, and you can see a lot of the original Star Wars trilogy. Again, a lot of dogfights, a lot of broad heroism, a lot mm-hmm. of plucky characters, yeah, young people going to war, characters. Yeah, yeah, a lot of great symbolism in it. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, it's, it's so connected to Star Wars that when they re-released Wings, when they remastered it. Uh, they did a bit of sound design for it, where they f- rescued the, the last remaining copy of the original score for the film, and they were able to re-record that, and mm. then they added uh, some sound effects throughout. And those sound effects were done by Ben Burt from mm. Star Wars mm. uh, over at Skywalker Sound. The, they, they know the importance of Wings. Um, but Wings also is about... Uh, a little bit more than that, and it is about how sometimes the people who go to war because they are young, because they are optimistic, and because they just want to stop those bad guys, they're not actually mature enough to do the right thing in war. Mm. So what happens is uh, Jack and David both go to war, and uh, they end up going to war together, and they actually hate each other, and it's not until they get into a fight that they finally like become friends. Mm. They finally like, get it out of their system a little bit. And they after they get through boot camp and boot camp's really cool actually because you get to see them on these like cool giant gyroscopes and like <laughs> practice with the Gatling guns like all the tech is fun. I'm guessing a lot of that was made up for the movie, but I don't know. If no, the sure, military right? was actually right behind them. They gave them all that stuff. Oh, well, all right. Uh, I mean, maybe some of it was it, fake. It, I don't know. It but seemed very movie. It's sa- I'm sure it's sanitized, right. but um, they go. They finally arrive at the point where they get to fly planes. And there's this amazing scene. This is actually an important scene in, in, in Hollywood history. Uh, they get to their, their new base. They mm. go to their tent. And they're sharing a tent with a, with a guy who's been there for a bit. The guy is played by a very young and incredibly handsome Gary Cooper. <laughs> Gary Cooper, of course, you would know from uh, High Noon. Probably best known for High Noon. But he's a movie star par excellence. This was the movie that got people noticing him. And it's not because he's in it a lot. He's only in this one scene. But the scene but it's is a striking scene. It's an important scene because the scene is this. Jack and uh, Jack and David are saying like, "Oh, we're going to yeah. go up in the sky." And they're you talking. I said Jack and Diane. I almost did. <laughs> Jack and David <laughs> It's a little titty. Uh, Jack and David are talking about how they're going to go up in the sky and they both got their totems. And David's mm. got his little teddy bear that he brought from home and uh, Jack has got a locket from Sylvia, and the reason he's got a locket from Sylvia is sure, when he went, there was to, a mix up. <laughs> he went to say goodbye, and Sylvia had just finished signing a, like, a, a picture of her for David, who she actually loves, mm. and putting it in a locket. And when Jack shows up and says, oh, you got me a locket? And she goes, oh, yeah, I got you a locket. <laughs> and he doesn't know that there's a message on the picture that isn't for him. And so he's been hanging on to this this whole time. And David knows it. Mm. <laughs> he feels really bad for the guy. Um, but they get in and they talk about their totems and everything. And Gary Cooper is just like, nah, I don't have any good luck charms. When it's your time, it's your time. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to get in my plane. He gets in his plane Dies in a minute. 
Just immediately, there's a crash, and he just dies. Well, it's, it's the whole fucking scene. It's the whole scene. It, it's almost comedic, but uh, it, it's it's loss of innocence, isn't it? It's that, yeah. like this person they knew is now dead. Yeah, it's also reminding you that there are consequences to this, even in the best conditions. Yeah. So all of a sudden, they went from being real gung ho about getting the plane to going, "Oh shit!" Um, here we go. Yeah. And they get in their planes, and they go on a variety of really impressive missions. Meanwhile, Clara Bow has decided to join the war effort as well and become part of uh, um, basically an EMT. She's driving yeah, around she, in an, an ambulance. A nurse. She's a nurse. Yeah, she's driving she's around in an ambulance doing war triage, etc. And at first, Jack and David have – in fact, Jack and David never find out she's there, hmm. even though she interacts with them quite directly. Uh, like they're like fighting an incredible dogfight over a town as it's being bombed to shit. Mm-hmm. And she's in that town and you see stuff explode around her and you realize they just blew up all that shit around Clara Bow. And you're mm-hmm. like, holy God. So it's, it's really thrilling. Uh, and uh, after, a, after a big decisive victory, uh, Jack and David are given leave. It's like, congratulations, you're given leave. And there's actually a big medal ceremony, just like at the end of uh, Star Wars Episode Four. They get to go on leave, and they get to go to Canto Bight. It's, it's a, a Parisian nightclub, but yeah, it looks like Canto Bight. Basically, here is here in the middle of war, this is flourishing. Mm-hmm. All right? Vice is flourishing. Gambling. Booze. Sex. And uh, Clara Bow is actually on a mission to find everyone because there's, they're having the big push. The war is, like, ending tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And they all leave as canceled. And everyone who doesn't immediately go back will be court-martialed. So she is trying to find Jack so that he won't be court-martialed. And Jack is drunk as a skunk. <laughs> Jack is drunk. Jack is so drunk he doesn't recognize her. Jack is so drunk he starts seeing bubbles everywhere. It's a- a- Animated w- on the screen. Yeah, yeah which is... Frankly, I think they go too, way too hard on that. Like, it's actually, like, they, forever he's seeing bubbles everywhere. But it's actually pretty impressive visual effects for the time. Just mm. the incorporation of animation into the film. Well, it's, it's just, like, the man. It's his hallucination. Mm. And, and the room is filled with bubbles. Mm. And now he's seeing them champagne rise. Bubbles, champagne bubbles, etc. Well, no, like, soap bubbles are being blown well, in the room. I meant, that's the point is he sees the champagne bubbles. And then he sees them float above the glass. Yeah. And they're all in the air and stuff, like mm. in Pink Elephants on Parade and Dumbo. Yeah, he's, he's, he's hallucinating. It's this weird sort of chaotic moment of, like, nightmarish surrealism. Yeah, except he thinks it's really cute and fun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, so I mean, she, that's Pink Elephants is the scarier version of yeah. that. So she is trying to get him back on his feet. She's trying to get him back into the war and trying to prevent him from being court-martialed. Mm-hmm. He's not paying attention to her, and she finally d- ends up uh, putting on, like, a flapper outfit in mm-hmm. order to get his attention as a, you know, sexually, mm-hmm. so that he'll follow her as opposed to the woman he's about to sleep with right now. And he, she finally, she finally gets his attention. And then just when she's like, you know, trying to like kind of snap him out of it and everything, and she's like taking off his flapper dress and trying to put on her uniform, mm-hmm. a couple of MPs show up, get the completely wrong idea, and say, "You're trying to have sex with him while we're trying to like get him back to the war effort. You are so court-martialed." And she's like, "Ah, oh, I was doing the right thing. Damn it! Like she's so cursed in this film." It's so gotta, sad, and you feel so bad silent, for her. Kind of love that silent film melodrama. Yeah, yeah she's so amazing, and is... Jack is such a tool. Like it's Jack and David. They're both well, like Jack it, is less so though. I mean, what does David do that's so bad? Uh, well, I guess he's just naive. He's, yeah, he's not a very like 
rich textured adult human being the no, same but, way uh, Mary is. But but David is or actually Sylvia. pretty well. David is actually pretty well put together. He's doing everything for pretty much the mm. right reasons and. Really, it's it's Jack who has all the growing up to do, I think, in the narrative. Uh, Clara Bow's character, I've, I'm pretty sure, was at the very least a style influence on Rose Tico. You look at their hairstyles, they are very much the same. <laughs> yeah, Clara yeah. Bow has a very distinct hairstyle in this movie, and Rose Tico has that hair. And you look at her and you realize that mm. here is someone who is, you know, at the beginning of The Last Jedi, is very... What's the word I'm looking for here? She's very passionate about it, but she's also a little naive. You know, she's got kind of a a fan person thing when she sees Finn. But um, ultimately, it is her commitment to goodness uh, that is a stark contrast between the hero that she's with throughout the movie. She's a hero, too, but the other protagonist that she's with, Mm -hmm. um, who is not there yet. And Jack isn't there yet. Finn isn't there yet. It takes Finn and, and, uh, like, this adventure... Mm-hmm. in The Last Jedi to see that he's not just like fighting to like survive and stuff. He actually needs to fight for a cause. He needs to grow up to become an actual hero rather than just a guy who makes it to the end of the movie because he loves his friends. Yeah, That's a great storyline. I love that storyline. I love what everything Rose Tico represents. And I think that's very, very much part of the inspiration of Wings. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, it all leads to... Maybe the biggest war scene I've ever seen in a movie. (laughs) Like, you look at the end of Wings, and you're just like, it's this giant, like, 30-minute battle sequence with incredible aerial effects and giant explosions and stuff you just don't know how the hell they did it. it, It's the modern film sensibility, actually, where a lot of modern films... Save all of all of the drama for the you know the big final conflict, and that big final final conflict in a lot of big major blockbusters has turned into yeah this thirty to forty five minute action spectacular yeah where it's just nothing but fights and they like move across gigantic spaces and there's dozens of people fighting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I find that to be incredibly tiresome, but I feel like when you're wor- working in the gigantic melodram- melodramatic milieu of wings... Take a drink, you said it, milieu. I said drink, drink, drink again. Milieu, milieu, milieu. Very good, very good. <laughs> Are you seeing bubbles yet? Uh, then, then that kind of climax is appropriate and earned. Yeah. When you're trying to make it really realistic, and then all of a sudden everybody's just this... Kill uh, like unkillable action machine. Yeah, that's not interesting to me. I would also argue that uh, when you're actually like to realize all of these giant epic war scenes and aerial dogfights and tank mm. battles, when you know they actually did it, there's an extra wow factor. When you know it's safe, when you know I'm not that people should be endangered, uh, mm. but like when you know that like people are just in a soundstage and it's yeah. all just done afterwards and like visual effects. It looks cool, and you can totally get immersed in it. But when you know that, like, wow, you just had, like, a hundred people across a giant plane, and they're all running around and fighting each other, and their explosions going off in the middle of the shot while we are in an airplane flying over them and having a dogfight, and mm-hmm. you're like, the only way to do that scene in 1927 is to actually do that. <laughs> it's extra impressive. The amount of effort that went into it and the fact that you're seeing what actually happened mm-hmm. from a particular angle that they chose, of course, and it's all storytelling. But it's just astounding to see this thing in action. Someone asked me once, I was tweeting about uh, uh, Wings recently, 
uh, while I was watching it for this podcast. They were just mm-hmm. like, is Wings like is Wings a real like 100% actual classic or is it just sort of noteworthy because it won the first best picture or no, maybe it's, it's good for the era? Like, no, it's good. No, it's it's really legitimately good. It needs yeah. to be rescued from that ash heap of film trivia. Yeah, it's, it's like, not oh, an it's, anecdote, man. It's, yeah. Oh, oh that, that was the first one, but no one's seen it. Well, see it. It's so on good. It's on Blu-ray. It's easily findable. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, you can stream it. It's, yeah. uh, uh, it's uh, available on Amazon Prime for like, I think, $3 rental. Yeah, you can rent it on yeah. Amazon. It's totally worth three dollars. It's that good. It's, it's long too. It's, it's a good two and a half hours yeah, you, worth of your time. You'll get your end. You'll get your money's worth. Mm. Like it's really fucking good. The ending of this movie, or at least the climax of this movie, mm. is one of the most devastating things. Because it's it's fucking amazing. <laughs> We're going to talk about it right and this, now. And again, this is a silent film. Like you couldn't do this in a modern film. It, it would be seen as kind of hammy. Yeah. I think if you did this in like Dunkirk or something, but. In in silent film where everything's kind of got this broad, dreamy quality, you can totally get away with this, and it feels very natural. Uh, so we're going to talk about the ending of this, but if you really want to see Wings and you don't want to have... Don't listen to the next mm-hmm. bit, because it's so good, and I don't want to ruin it for you. But, I mean, it is a film from 1927. No, but- you've had your opportunities, but I also know that everyone's on their cinematic journey at a different time, and mm-hmm. not everyone gets everything at the same time, and... Sometimes movies are so iconic, we're not super worried about ruining anything. But Wings is one of those movies that you may have heard of, but very few people actually make a point of sitting people down and showing them like you would, say, Citizen Kane or The Searchers. So uh, I just want to make a point. If you don't want to know how the movie ends and you just want to check it out for yourself, and you should, you listen to this later. If you don't care or you're still not sold yet, here's how the movie ends, because it's really fucking amazing. So uh, just before the final battle Mm-hmm. Uh, Jack and David are actually fighting because uh, David is uh, Jack's uh, picture has fallen out of his locket, and David is trying to prevent him from seeing that Sylvia doesn't really love him. Mm. And in order to do that, he like, rips up the picture, and Jack thinks he's a fucking asshole. And so they get into the plane, and David leaves his bear behind because it's such an emotional altercation. And he realizes, oh shit, he's not coming <laughs> back from this. There's a huge fucking aerial dogfight. David crashes behind enemy lines and is immediately fired upon by the Germans. So he runs and runs and runs, and everyone assumes he's dead, including Jack. And Jack decides, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to kill as many Germans as I can. I'm going to get revenge for my friend. Because that's what mature people do. That's what war is about. Revenge. I'm going to shoot down that German plane. Yeah. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah, because what happens is... David, in a really heroic fashion, mm. he manages to like hide behind enemy lines, find a German airstrip, steal a plane, return with the plane, shoot down some fucking planes before he leaves so that they can't chase him and, the, and kill more Americans and mm. Brits and everything. And then he starts flying back. Yeah, like I, And Brits and everything. The Allies. They're called yeah, the Allies. Whatever. My point, I didn't just want <laughs> to say just I'm, Americans. I'm kidding. Right? I'm kidding. That, was, that was World War II. But, that's, that was, that's an Eddie Izzard joke. Right. Uh, but uh, in any case, he, he does all this incredible heroic shit, mm. and now he's flying back uh, uh, to his own lines, mm. but he's doing it in a German plane, and Jack sees him. <laughs> and he sees oh, Jack, so he br- recognizes so Jack's plane because yeah. he's got a shooting star on it. That's like his whole motif, that's that symbolism. Yeah. And Jack is, all he sees is a German plane. He doesn't know that's David. How could he possibly know? Mm. And David is screaming at him, please, no, don't kill me. I'm your best friend. And then he shoots him the fuck down. And the plane crashes into a house, which they did not fake. (laughs) And you look at the shot and like, oh, that's got to be a model. And then you see people run into the shot without any cuts. And they're like, oh, shit, they crashed a plane into a house. (laughs) Uh 
there, there's been a lot of talk about how uh, certain filmmakers put uh, actors at risk. Yeah. And, you know, there was a time when that's all they could do. Yeah. Uh, and there have been a lot of filmmakers who have come up since the inception of a lot of safety protocols yeah. who decide to shoot in a dangerous fashion. Tom Cruise, for example, he's perfectly uh, yeah. willing to risk his own life. Yeah. Uh, the, the story of the, the Twilight Zone movie is the most notorious example of, of this. Because this people, going horribly yeah, wrong. Because three people died when it yeah. went wrong. Really horrifying. Uh, yeah. and, and the whole idea was, yeah, we'll just do it by the seat of our pants. We'll be really risky about it and people no. die. Yeah. Uh, Someone died making wings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, there were two serious injuries reported on the on the set of wings. Uh, one was a plane crash that went wrong. It's hard to imagine it going right, and a guy broke his neck. But he was back to work six weeks later. Stunt people, <laughs> holy shit! Stunt people, right? They're fucking amazing. But there was uh, also uh, I oh I know what this no this is a concussion. I know what yeah, those feel yeah. like. Yeah, but there was also a pilot who did die, and apparently there again I, it's a long ass time ago. Mm. I'm sure they wanted to protect the production, but the story goes is that it was determined it was pilot error. I don't know anything more than that's mm. what they said. I take that with a grain but, of salt because how could I possibly know? Well, I think enough, enough time has passed and, you know, Will, William Wellman is dead and mm-hmm. every, every, every member of the cast is dead at this point. I think so, yeah. I, I don't think they're, yeah. I'd be, that, I'd be surprised. That we're, we're not out, out in the world sort of spreading... Uh, like giving money to an unhealthy filmmaker who's still doing mm. irresponsible things... We're just kind of we have you know sitting back and watching this a little bit more objectively, saying, "Wow, they actually did yeah. these hugely dangerous things, and now we can just enjoy how spectacular that was." Yeah, and like we're thinking about the context, yeah. but it's hard not to be impressed by what they yeah, yeah. got on camera. And Jack lands right next to this plane that he just shot down, and the first thing that he does is he runs up to the plane and he pulls off the cross, and it's like, "I'm going to keep this with me. This is my thing." And then, like the woman who lives there, it's like, "Hey, the pilot you shot down is dying. You want to like say hi to him?" And Jack's yeah. like, "Yeah, sure. I'll rub it in his face." Holy shit, David! Um, and cra- what? And and David's not quite dead. No. And, and cr- he cradles David as he dies. The scene where Jack, uh, uh, where David dies in Jack's arms. Mm. Is really noteworthy for a couple of things. One, they kiss. They kiss on the mouth. They kiss on the mouth, and it's been argued that that is more of a system, uh, a symbol of uh, you know masculine heterosexual affection. Mm. There's also a perfectly good interpretation of this film that they're in love. They have they, a, they, de- could, they definitely have a closer relationship than they do to either of the women in their lives. The uh, I don't think that uh, audiences in 1927 would have thought they are lovers. Hmm. Maybe a small portion of the audience, but I think the closet was so tightly locked in 1927 that a lot of mainstream hetero audiences didn't even know it was there. They didn't think so. If two men are kissing, that is a symbol of heterosexual affection Mm -hmm. because no one would think that 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 would be gay because they haven't even thought about gay. Yeah. And Uh, indeed, and indeed there was a hmm. lot. If you look at the silent era, there was a lot of gay coding. There mm. really was, and uh, so well, it's there are a, a lot of gay people in the industry, of yeah, course, exactly. and uh, and you know, so like it's, it's not, not it's not unre- people. it's not an unreasonable reading of the film. Like mm. it's probably someone on the set probably thought, okay, let's go for it. But again, there was also probably a lot of people who really didn't think twice about it. But it's in there, and it's an mm. interesting scene, I think, and part of it anyway. Jack goes home. He has to, like, talk to David's parents. Everyone is super ready to forgive him for this, by the way. Everyone's always like, no, it wasn't you. It was dot, dot, dot. War! (laughs) And I'm like, actually, it was Jack. Jack didn't have to go so hard on the fucking revenge kick. The war was over. They declared victory already. Like, he was off to kill. Hmm. 
And the fact that he killed David and the fact that he, like, you know, David was trying to contact him. He was trying to wave him down. And Dave, Jack didn't care. Mm. Jack wasn't thinking. It was the last straw. And it's the last thing he does. He ends up winning the war. He kills one la- He downs one last German plane. But he realizes there was a person in there. A person he cared about. And that's going to haunt him forever. You can see, like, in the last scenes of the film, his hair is already going gray. Like, mm. you can see, like, he's haunted by this. And this is going to follow him. And even though he ends up going back home, marrying Claire Beau... Everything's going to be more or less okay. It wasn't without an enormous cost. And the cost largely came because he was immature and approached war in an immature way. Yeah, yeah. And that's really powerful. It's not quite as devastating as something like All Quiet on the Western Front, no. which is, I mean... It's to, one of the it's, great It's, it's, it's unfair movies. to compare anything to All Quiet on the Western Front because it's one of the best war movies it, ever made. I, I would probably but, say uh, it's still the best. It was like oh, 1931, yeah. and it's still the best. still the best. And, yeah. and it, that film is really, really good about showing the damage war does to a surviving soldier. Yeah. And how uh, the scene at the end where he co- and re-enters his old classroom and there's all those kids being taught like how, how great war is and he just breaks down and says, no, this is all bullshit. Yeah. It's so great. And uh, they all accuse him of being a bad German. Yeah. It's like, no. No, I was there. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a very good German. I'm trying to tell you why this is fucked. <laughs> Gosh, I love that movie. So um, amazing. So, yeah, I, I feel like... Although we're talking about sort of the heightened melodrama, I mm. think we are missing a, a note of emotional authenticity from mm. the the closure of of Wings. I think it's which, fair to say, uh, because it's which, one of those have your cake and eat it too mm, movies, where it kind of yeah. wants to be anti-war, but it also does want to show how amazing... How spectacular it all and, is. And yeah. it is. It is spectacular to look at, but you're right. But it does... It plays the big melodramatic moments in such a way that... But it ultimately boils down to, what, what was the worst thing that happened in World War One? David died. Poor David. Yeah, and like that's a lot of bad <laughs> shit happened in World War One. We're also we're skimming over that. Gas. Yeah, we're dude. skimming over that a little bit. Yeah, mm. but uh, I I feel like that kind of backing off from the more serious topics and falling back on something a little bit more fanciful mm-hmm. could also be leveled at Star Wars, can't sure. it? Yeah, I especially think so. the Last Jedi, which is uh, one of the film one of the only Star Wars films that really tried to, and actually kind of with an element of success, delve into a little bit more of the background of the Star Wars universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit more of the details, a little mm-hmm. bit more of the... Uh, the corruption. Yeah, the, the... the corruption and just the, the immoral aspect of all of the war in general. Yeah. Not that the good guys are on the side of right, that all of this is bad. Yeah, war is bad no matter mm-hmm. what side you're on, and mm-hmm. there's it should not be perpetuated, right. and we should be trying to move away from it. And instead of trying to, like, do things like make heroic sacrifices to make a point, maybe we should be trying to live long enough in order to end this and move on. Yeah. Um, and that's very, very potent, I think. And that's very mature for Star Wars. And then, but it's then, not, then the it's next not, movie kind of goes back on that. Well, it's, it, and it's, it's also a lot of people responded badly to that because I, yeah. it's not satisfying in the same sort of way. It's not about good guys triumphing. It's about, oh shit, we just need to survive because war is awful. And I'm like, you, there was, we need to, you we, were fine with the fascism the, movie. Why is this bad? I it was the first Star it. Wars movie to say, no, Star Wars isn't a good idea. It's kind of critical of the, the the series from the inside out. And I'm sorry, if you can't get, like, what is it, like 40 years, no, like 35 years into a franchise, mm. like, what is it, like 12 films into it, depending on how you count, 
without being a little thoughtful about where you've come before. Mm. I, I don't know where else you can do, man. Yeah, you can't yeah. be you can't perpetuate this naivete for that long. Mm. Eventually, you have to let the series evolve a little. Yeah, I um I feel like. The Last Jedi had a few moments where they did regress a little bit. Sure. Uh, th- there's the scene where um, it, it's al- it's almost like a payoff. It's like a punchline to a joke mm. where um, Ray, Ray at the beginning of the movie, Ray is on uh, Luke Skywalker's island mm-hmm. and he's saying the, the the force is more complicated than just like lifting rocks with your mind, which is uh-huh. what, what he did in. The Empire Strikes Back. Right. So it's a little bit of a joke. It's like it's it's a little bit more sophisticated than that. You don't just lift rocks. But then in the climax of the film, that's Rey's heroic move. She lifts rocks. <laughs> People are stuck in a cave and she uses her, her mind powers to lift rocks. You're so right. That, that is that is a little that ironic. Feels, yeah. It feels a little bit silly for how uh, how serious the film had become at that I point. Th- I would argue that because Luke Skywalker actually uses the Force in more complicated ways at the end, and mm. he actually does things that people didn't think he could do. Yeah, like uh, astrally projects. Yeah, like that's... Before, yeah. No one knew that was a thing, and he does it in a really amazing mm. way, and he ends up basically winning a giant battle without killing anybody. Yeah, like, it's really, I, I like that. That's yeah. beautiful. I love that. That's poetic, but... The the idea that Ray does also lift rocks is kind of a joke. It's also mm. it's also heroic. She does save the day, but at the same time, you're right. It does end up simplifying it a little bit. And mm. and indeed, I think uh, uh, Johnson even plays with that a little bit when at the beginning when Ray is trying to convince Luke Skywalker to join the cause, he's like, "What do you think I'm gonna do? You just want like a space wizard to like run at an army with a laser sword and solve all your problems?" Which is what he does, but he does it on different terms, doesn't mm. he? And I, I think that's pretty clever, but I also think you're right. And I think The Last Jedi is in this position where it is trying to have its cake and eat it, too. It needs mm. to be entertaining, but I think it is very eager to be challenging. And I think it is eager to try to push the franchise in ways that I actually think, if we're being totally fair, mm. Empire Strikes Back did as well. Where Empire Strikes Back tried to add mm. sort of spiritual depth yeah, to what we knew yeah. about the Force, and it separated the characters and put them on these incredibly like harrowing journeys that ultimately not that important to the plot. Yeah, what like I, they, they just which is they just little... run the run for most of it. Like, and it's exciting yeah. and it works, but like that's not the kind of movie that I think most people really like associate with Star Wars, even though it's considered arguably the best Star Wars, which is one of the reasons why I think The Last Jedi will age really well. It's because It'll, it is pushing it, and I think people will respect that more and more over time. It'll age well. I think one of the things that happened was uh, at some point along uh, the the timeline of Star Wars, the fans took over. Yeah. They, they demanded something very specific from Star Wars, and when the studio gave it to them, they were happy, and when the studio didn't give it to them, they weren't. Uh, when The Empire Strikes Back came out, it was a huge hit. Every, from what I understand, there wasn't a lot of dissent or you know, f- fans who were upset that they were changing elements of the original Star Wars. Uh, that happened when The Last Jedi came out 40 years later. And even though they're, they're attempting to do something similar in that they're trying to do something different, mm-hmm. uh, one got a really positive reaction and one got a very negative reaction. And I think we'll have a conversation very soon about how the conversation about Star Wars eventually became louder than Star Wars. Mm. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that in a couple of episodes. Uh, So that is episode zero. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, We've got two episodes left of this. Mm. We haven't really talked about that. We talked about it a little bit on the Patreon. But uh, this was never intended to go on forever. 
We wanted to explore various aspects of the things that hit Star Wars and wanted to do it for a while. But we also knew that eventually we might start getting repetitive and start looking mm-hmm. at a whole bunch of different movies that cover similar topics. And I mean, there's only 15 Star Wars movies. There's only so yeah. many influences we can and, cover. And, like, and, and we could do more, but then we start getting a little more nitpicky, like this influences one little part and... Mm-hmm. We could keep doing that, but we actually thought it would be really exciting to start looking at other movies that became pop culture institutions and start looking at the film, the prehistory of those films as well. So after two more episodes of Star Wars, we will be moving on, but we have two more episodes to go. And the next episode is going to be a bit of a digression or, or not a digression. Um, what's what I'm looking for? A bit of a change of pace hmm. because we're actually going to be looking not at a film. We're going to be looking at the works of Joseph Campbell. And specifically, we're going to be focusing on a work that came after Star Wars, but is very. It's very. It became instrumental in the way we criticized Star Wars. I think that's fair to say. Uh, we're going to be looking at Joseph Campbell's uh, "The Power of Myth." Hmm. Uh, we're going to be looking at the book. Uh, we might also try to track down the BBC uh, series that they did, mm-hmm. uh, but we're definitely going to be looking at the book, and we're going to be talking about that on the next. Episode zero. And then we have one more uh, episode to go after that, and we're very pleased with the movie that we've picked to finish this out. The, the, final, the final film will be a good we'll, conversation. It will be, we'll reveal it at the end of the next episode, but we, when we realize that like, there's one thing we haven't really talked about yet, and uh, then we realize there's a perfect movie to use to discuss it, and it's not the movie I think most people would go to, mm-hmm. and we're very, very excited to conclude the show with this particular film. Uh, and then we, we might take a week off or something like that, but then we're going to come roaring right back uh, way, by adding episode zero to another film. Should we announce the film yet or should we wait? Let's wait. One more okay. week. One more week. We'll tease it out. We'll tease it out. We'll yeah. tease it out. But we're going to switch it up and we're going to change it to another giant pop culture institution. And then we'll spend 10 to 20 episodes focusing on the prehistory of that. And then we'll move on. And then we'll do more because we love this idea. And um, it gives us a really interesting opportunity to examine film history and, and indeed cultural history uh, through interesting lenses and make direct connections to the art that we love today. Mm. Uh, so thank you everybody for listening. If you want to talk to us about anything that we wrote in this episode, or, I'm sorry, that we said in this episode, mm. it's late. Uh, <laughs> if you want to talk to us about anything we said in this episode, you want to ask us a question, comment, uh, share your own thoughts, uh, you can write us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, we might read your uh, letter on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, you can also tweet us at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, if you aren't a member of our Patreon, uh, you can head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network for a ton of exclusive content, including podcasts dedicated to every episode of Star Trek, every episode of Firefly. We're about to start a Patreon-exclusive podcast where we review every single episode of the 1960s live-action Batman series. Uh, and we also have, as we mentioned here... Our podcast, Only the Best, in which we are reviewing every single film ever nominated for Best Picture, starting with the first year where we talk about Wings as well and a bunch of other nominees that people do not talk about. Mm. And we do every year uh, uh, onward from that. And it's a really exciting series to do. It's one of my favorite things that we get to do because 
every year, yeah, we're revisiting a few classics, maybe a couple of things we've seen before, heard of before, but there's also a few that have fallen underneath the cracks, and sometimes those are the best things. Yeah, yeah. So there's some amazing movies we've we've uncovered like, here, and they should not be obscure. The Best Picture nominees, but nobody watch, talks about it. Watch them. Skippy. Skippy's uh, amazing. Watch The Champ. Yeah. Uh, if you want to cry, watch The Champ. Oh, one of the great weepies <laughs> ever. Yeah. It, it is yeah. like one of the great Hollywood tragedies. It yeah. is so good. Yeah, so it's been a real, real mm. adventure, and um, and that's yeah. just too off the top of my head. No, and, yeah. the, and then we're halfway through 1939. Um, there's a chunk in like the late 30s, early 40s, where the Academy Awards had 10 nominees, much not, not unlike they have now, where they expanded it. Um, and what we're doing is uh, we're doing five nominees mm. per episode. And then once we get through the 10 nominee period, we're going to go back to doing one year per episode. Uh, but in any case, that's going on now. And we're going to do a new episode of that in the next couple of weeks. And God, I love that show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Thank you, everybody, once again for listening. Very special thank you to all of our patrons, without whom we couldn't be doing anything right now. Like, at all. Mm. We couldn't afford to. So thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. We would not be able to give anyone any content free or otherwise if it wasn't for our patrons. We're grateful to you. Mm. Thank you. And uh, don't forget, may the force be with you. (laughs) 